Amen. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you. Father, I'm so thankful that we do not have to come in here and put on a show or perform. Father, it is not about the quality of our worship or the, how good a sermon might be. As long as it points to you and your magnificence and your glory. So Father, we've, we know we plant the seeds and we may water, but it is you that gives the growth. So Father, would your spirit move now in a powerful way? Would your spirit rain down growth, Father? We, do, we don't just want information, we want transformation. Open our eyes to what you would have us see. Open our ears to what you would have us hear. Open our hearts. Tune the frequency of our hearts to your voice. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Trinity. My name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. I feel so blessed today. We had some dear friends here in the first service. Uh, it was just so encouraging to look out in the audience and see them and look out in the audience today and see faces, whole faces, and nothing but the faces. So praise Jesus. And I've got some dear friends here this morning as well. Love you guys. In fact, you guys have heard me talk about my friend Chris, the Lebanon trip that I took. He was one of the first people I called. Chris, I got invited to preach the gospel in Lebanon. His response, when are we going? I love you, man. Thank you so much. Praise Jesus. And my mom is here today. I love you, Mom. Get your tissues ready. I'm not kidding. Get your tissues ready. All right, let's go. We are continuing our sermon series this morning in the Gospel of Mark. And we've, we've titled this sermon series, Following Jesus. And so we're going through the Gospel of Mark. And as we do it, we're tracking what was it like for believers, followers of Jesus in first century Palestine to follow him. But not just them then but us now. What is it like for us, 21st century Boston, to follow Jesus? And today we find ourselves in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in verses 21 to 43. Before we get there, repetition in literature, as many of you know, and in our dialogue, as many parents know, is one way we convey importance. The more we say something, specifically instructions or commands, the more we are signaling its importance. So pop quiz. And don't cheat. If you watch first service, don't cheat. You're in church. What is the most repeated command in Scripture? Whatever. Father, would they repent for their cheating this morning? No. Yes, fear not. 365 times God's word tells us, fear not. It's almost like every single day of the year we're reminded, fear not not. And although it's easy to operate from a place of fear, especially nowadays, it is literally anti-biblical to do so. Because to do so calls into question the power of God, the providence of God, and the very promises of God. And being fearful is far from just an emotional experience. It is deeply spiritual. And when we're motivated by fear, we're not just skeptical of God, Oftentimes we're skeptical of ourselves, we're skeptical of others, they don't look like us, they don't vote like us, they don't keep the pandemic like us. And fear impacts not just the things we say, but the things we do. 
And oftentimes the things that we don't do. And as I poured over today's scripture the last two weeks, one truth emerged. And it's a truth that doesn't just speak into the fear in our lives, but it abolishes its power. It's a truth not offered by any other religion or worldview. And it's a truth that reframes our relationship with Jesus, thereby freeing us to carry out his mission even during the darkest of times. And the truth, the blessing really, is this. When you follow Jesus, he will use the circumstances in your life that you cannot control to produce in you a faith that you cannot imagine. When you follow Jesus, he will use the circumstances in your life that you cannot control to produce in you a faith that you cannot imagine. Let's dig in. If you're following along, the scripture will be uh, on the screens behind me. Again, Mark chapter 5. We'll start right in verse 21. This is a long chunk of scripture, and so uh, you, can, you can stay seated while I read through it. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be made well and live. And he, Jesus, went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately her flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. 
and strictly charged them that no one should know them and told them to give her something to eat. All right, there is a lot to unpack here, so I am going to move quickly through some of this, and then I will slam on the brakes in other parts. At this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has healed people. He just finished casting out demons on the other side of the sea. He's teaching with heavenly authority, so it's no surprise that a large crowd gathers around Jesus when he returns to Capernaum. Now, Jairus, who we meet, is an archon in the Greek. This is a ruler of the synagogue. This is a man of status, of influence, a man of means. And to remind us the relationship that Jesus had with the religious elite, it was contentious to say the least. They questioned Jesus. They tried to trap him with verbal arguments. They denounced him. They disgraced him. And finally, they killed him. But on this day, Jairus is a man of total desperation as he was in a race against time for his daughter, his only daughter, who's about to die. And I want you to imagine that up here next to me I have a giant hourglass and I flip it over. And think of the sand pouring through the hourglass as we go through this story. Now verse 22 tells us that Jairus, this man of status, he finds Jesus and he falls at his feet. But Jairus wasn't just a man of status and power. He was a person devoted to the law of Moses, memorizing it, teaching it, judging by it, living it. But as sweet as God's laws are, the fact is, is that they are powerless to save. Ultimately, what the law is meant to do is exactly what it does to Jairus and every single one of us. It brings us straight to the feet of Jesus. So before Jesus Christ, Jairus, a man of the law, assumes a posture of total surrender. And don't gloss over this. The reputational risk that Jairus is taking here is huge. A man like him, representing a ruling class like that, at the feet of Jesus? This guy's got a lot of social status to lose. But as big as his reputational risk is, doesn't this just indicate how much larger his desperation is? This is panic-style desperation. His little daughter is on the verge of death. Implore, as we read it, is not sufficient enough. Make no mistake about it, Jairus is begging Jesus to come and heal his daughter. He's betting everything on Christ. All his chips are on Christ. He's pushing his career, his livelihood, his status, his influence, his friendships, the very life of his daughter. He goes all in on Christ. This isn't, well, if Jesus can't do it, I'll just get that healer that's coming by next week to figure it out. This is either Jesus does it or my daughter dies. And as fearful as Jairus is at this point in the story, it's about to get a whole lot darker. Because all of a sudden comes an interruption from a woman. But not just any woman. A woman who experienced for 12 years a flow of blood. Literally translated, the scourge or the whip. We have to understand this culture. This woman was not named by the gospel writer Mark. 
not named by the gospel writer Luke and not named by the gospel writer Matthew, most likely because no one knew her name. Her flow of blood is a constant menstrual cycle, making her ceremonially unclean in the Jewish culture. So think about it. She has no status. She has no power. She cannot worship her God with her own people. She can't even touch a man without making that man ceremonially unclean. She's outcast, deemed totally unworthy by her own people. So here we have a man named Jairus and a woman with no name. A man with status and an outcast woman. A man with means and a woman that exhausted all her resources. A man in charge of Jewish worship. A woman that was forbidden to worship. A man with a dying daughter. A daughter that probably just wanted to die. One says, if I can just get Jesus to come with me. The other says, if I can get, just get to Jesus. But for all their differences, they had one key thing in common. That they were both facing dire circumstances that were completely out of their control that brought them to the feet of Jesus. Now, Jesus being a good Jewish man would have had an outer garment which to us would resemble a scarf. It was called a shimla. It went over the shoulders and hung down. At the end of the garment on both sides were tassels. This was the fringe of his garment. This garment was worn by Jewish men. The tassels were tied in five successive knots to signify the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And in between those knots were four spaces, which represented the great Shema given to the people of Israel after their exodus from Egypt. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. I'm not kidding about this next part. The name for these tassels is siftim in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, just like other ancient Near East cultures, every letter of the alphabet was given a corresponding numerical value. The Hebrew word siftim has a corresponding numerical value of 600. The tassels were made from eight strings and they had five knots. If you add the 600, the eight, and the five together, you get 613, which is the number of commands in the law of Moses. This comes right out of God's commands to the Israelites in Numbers chapter 15. God says, speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it. And remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. And that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. That's why Jesus was wearing it. But why did the woman want to touch it? Even though she didn't fully understand the purpose of Jesus, she believed in the promise of God. What promise? 500 years before Christ, the prophet Malachi issued this prophecy about the Savior, about the coming Messiah. This is Malachi chapter 4, four verse 2, and this is God speaking. He says, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. But let me read that verse to you from the Hebrew. 
as the woman would have read it and memorized it. But to you who have reverence for my name, the Son of Righteousness shall come forth with deliverance in his garments. If I only touch the fringe of his garments, I will be healed. And the way that's written in the Greek, the way Mark writes this, she's saying it over and over and over and over again as if she's praying Malachi 4. She comes up behind Jesus. It's like she's trying to sneak a healing, right? But Jesus has much greater purposes for her life. She sneaks up. She grabs hold of his garment. And immediately she makes Jesus ceremonial unclean, right? Wrong. Verse 29. Immediately her discharge ceased. If she had touched a man with her hand, she would have made him ceremonially unclean. But you touch Jesus with faith, and he makes you white as snow immediately. Now the healing occurred. She was physically healed, right? Jesus could have just continued right on to Jairus' house. But here comes the faith that she cannot imagine. Verse 30, Jesus says, who touched my garments? Well, as Mark writes... The entire crowd seemed to be touching him, closing in on him, following him. If you've ever seen an ambulance move through rush hour traffic, that's the picture in your mind of Jesus moving through this crowd. It is certain that someone touched Jesus before this woman. But what made Jesus stop everything? A touch of faith. The desperate clutch of faith. The type of clutch and the type of faith that says, you're all I've got. You're my only hope. Who touched my garments? Now this question is not so Jesus can gain knowledge. It is so this woman can gain redemption and restoration. Now previously she moved about her people in shame. But look at how she comes before Jesus. Verse 33. In fear comes before Jesus in fear. She's trapped. She's totally trapped before this great crowd. But in reality, she's about to be more free than she's ever been. Jesus opens his mouth. Now, this might be the first time that a man has talked to her in quite a while. And no doubt, she had to have been gearing up for a rebuke had to have been gearing up for yet another shaming in front of everyone. And Jesus says to her, daughter, 12 years without affection, daughter, 12 years without relationship, daughter, 12 years afflicted, outcast, desperate, isolated, daughter, 12 years, her identity wrapped up in her illness. Daughter. Jesus made her right physically, but he's not done yet. He makes her right spiritually. He says to her, your faith has made you well, which literally translates, your faith has saved you. But he's not done yet. Because his position of authority makes this woman right socially. 
go in peace. Peace. Peace with God. Peace with man. See, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he doesn't just cleanse you. He claims you. And he uses this woman's dire circumstance to produce in her an unshakable faith. She only wanted a healing. And it's not like she was asking the king of the universe for too much. She was asking for too little. How about a physical healing? How about social restoration? How about spiritual salvation? See, this is exactly what Jesus left heaven to do. And not just for her then, but you now. For whom the Son sets free is free indeed. The Son of Righteousness shining upon this woman must have felt like the sun setting on Jairus. Because right then and there, the last grain of sand in our hourglass was put on. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Now I come from parents who have heard, your daughter is dead. I've lived the carnage that follows that statement. Some of you this year have heard, Dad is gone. Mom is gone. Your husband's passed. And time stops when you get a call like that. And if you've lived long enough on this earth, you know when you hear that, your blood turns to ice. Now pan the camera in your mind to Jairus. He touched your garment? Who cares? You were my last hope. You were my last resort. This must have been disappointment on a cosmic scale. Didn't you understand the situation? Didn't you care? I came to you. I fell at your feet. Why didn't you do something? It's so easy to mistake a delay of Jesus' mercy for a denial of our faith. It is so easy to mistake a delay of Jesus' mercy for a denial of our faith. But that is not the way that Jesus works. For those who come to Jesus in faith, even when it seems like he doesn't hear our prayer, or he seems like he's heard it and he doesn't care, Scripture gives us only two options. And both are filled with hope if you trust in the power and promise of Jesus. Jesus is either protecting us from something we do not know and or he is providing something we cannot fathom. That's it. That's not my opinion. That's the only two options scripture gives us. For we know that God works all things for good for those who love him. There's something else here that I need to address in verse 35. After they tell Jairus that his daughter has passed, they say this. Do not trouble the teacher any longer. Many of you have heard this. I've prayed outside with many of you that have heard this whisper of the enemy. 
Your family won't be restored. Stop praying for that. Don't trouble Jesus. You won't gain victory over that addiction. Stop praying for that. Your illness isn't going away. Stop praying for that. God can forgive a lot of things, but that stuff from your past, cut it out. Stop praying for that. Don't bother Jesus. Well, I say in the name of Jesus, nonsense. Bring your burdens. Bring your past. Bring your addictions. Bring your family. Bring your fears. Bring your failures. Bring them to the feet of Jesus. Trouble him. It is no trouble at all. And Jesus overhears this nonsense and he looks directly at Jairus. Listen to what he says. I picture him like grabbing Jairus by the shoulders, right? Like face to face. Verse 36. Do not fear. Keep believing. What is the remedy for fear? Faith in Jesus. He's calling Jairus to the highest level of faith. See, until then... To Jairus, Jesus was just a good teacher or somebody that could maybe heal. But Jesus isn't just good, he is God. And the Greek renders verse 31 or 41 rather a bit better and this scene a bit better. But what Jesus does with this little girl when he gets to Jairus' house is something like a loving father would do to wake up his little daughter in the morning. He takes her by the hand and it's almost like he's helping her up as he instructs her to rise. Little girl, wake up. Her eyes open, her lungs filled, her ailment healed, her life restored. Her parents' eyes dried, their infinite sadness turned to ultimate joy. This bed, the little girl's temporary grave, now empty, death's power destroyed. This is the gospel, this entire story is the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. From guilt and shame to peace, from rejection to acceptance, from condemnation to grace, from depression to hope, from despair to joy, from ultimate loss to ultimate gain, from unnamed to a child of God, from death to life. But the grace of God, the grace of God through Jesus Christ does not come cheap. Jesus is not some cosmic miracle vending machine. Yes, this woman busted through the crowd to touch Jesus physically, but it was first Jesus who busted onto earth to touch us spiritually. Yes, this woman was saved from the whip, but only because Jesus took the whip for us and by his wounds we are healed. This rejected and cast down woman was redeemed and restored, but only because it was Jesus who was rejected and despised. Yes, this woman's flow of blood stopped, but only because on the cross the blood of Jesus flowed. Yes, both the woman's faith and Jairus' faith was lifted higher through circumstances out of their control, but only because Jesus, in complete control, was lifted higher on the cross. He was lifted higher than depression and higher than rejection and higher than illness and higher than doubt and higher than fear and higher than addiction and higher than a pandemic and higher than death itself. And yes, Jairus' daughter, his only daughter, received her life back, but only because it was God's son, God's only son, who gave up his. See, this story 
gives us a tremendous amount of comfort and hope, but only because I read the ending. For those of you who have prayed earnestly for loved ones and watched them as they've passed from this life to the next, allow me to read for you the ultimate ending. This is how it all ends. Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It is not death that has the final word. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that has the final word. And for those of you who, like the woman, under the weight of your pain or your addiction or your suffering, you've sought relief apart from Christ, you've put your faith in programs or rituals or your own effort, but like running on a treadmill, you end up exhausted, not having moved an inch. The strongest faith in anything other than Jesus will lead you to ruin, whereas even the weakest faith in Christ will lead you to eternal life. And some of you, like Jairus, you let your circumstances determine the power of Jesus instead of the power of Jesus determining your circumstance. And many of us, myself included, find it so easy to trust Jesus with our death, yet we struggle to trust him with our life. But does not this story illustrate that Jesus is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card? His blessing is not just eternal life then, but abundant life now. Pass through the crowd, the culture, the noise, past the distraction, the naysayers, the unbelief, the fear, the unknown, and in faith, fall on your knees before the Lord Jesus Christ and grab hold of the promises contained therein. And when you do, Jesus will use the circumstances in your life that are out of your control to produce in you a faith that you cannot Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this, this story that doesn't just happen 2,000 years ago, but this is a present tense reality for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. Father, the offer is not just eternal life, but resurrection life now. Father, there are people here who have been praying for healing. Father, we pray that you move mightily and heal. There are people here that are praying for restoration. You are a God that rescues and restores. Father, we pray that you convict our hearts, that you convert us, and that we see in here what a beautiful Savior your Son is. It's in his matchless name we pray. Amen.